What's up, Rick? All right, you're there. Nice, nice. All right, cool. Ladies and gents, welcome to Andrew Podcast. And before we get started, I just want to say thanks to everybody that's been supporting from season one all the way to season nine. And by the time you guys hear this, this is actually season nine, episode 19. Now, you guys know that I dedicated this show to really to my fellow indie artists and this next man right here definitely has 30 years worth of experience in the in the music business definitely had some lots of experience in um in radio being a program director um 30 plus years in artist management whether it's indie artists or a big um, major label artists um lots of experience in putting together radio tours and he's also the host of the MIB podcast, constantly educating artists on how to beat the algorithms and tips and techniques on, on, on how to win in this music industry. And he's also the author of um, the $150,000 music degree. And definitely last but not the least, he's also the former manager of Taylor Swift for about three years from 05 to 08. And I'm super honored to have you, man. Ladies and gentlemen, we got Rick Barker in the house. What up, Rick? Thanks, Marlon, man. Appreciate the introduction. You covered all your bases. Haha, <laughs> thank you for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Um, so Rick, I asked all my guests, where were you born and raised? So I was born in Hayward, California. So up in the East Bay, uh, but I was raised actually in Alabama. Uh, my mom and dad divorced, so I ended up going to Alabama to live with my mom in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. So that's where I kind of tell people that I was raised, was the South. What do you remember about Alabama growing up? It was slow. <laughs> you know, it was, it was it was like you used to hear about. But what was cool about Alabama, where we were, was there was a big music scene that was happening. It was the Muscle Shoals music scene. Uh, the Swampers are from there. There's a great Netflix documentary. Uh, about the Muscle Shoals music scene. And my mom was dating a drummer. So I was able to hang around the studios early on and kind of get a taste. And I guess that's where you could say I developed my yeah. love for for live music. I was just never talented enough or disciplined enough to play. That's why I became a DJ. I'm like, hey, I'll just find the coolest songs and play that. <laughs> and that's what worked out well for me. Nice, man. I would say like your junior high years. What albums do you remember listening to in your junior high adolescence? So I've always been a massive Prince fan. Nice. Uh, I also, yeah. So Prince is my favorite artist of all time. It's the first uh, album that I ever bought a ticket to back in 1984. Uh, it was about 300 bucks for a front row ticket. Now that couldn't even get you in the nosebleed sections anywhere. But yeah, Prince has always been, I've, I've always been a fan of dance music. You know, growing up, I, I loved the, uh, the, the hip hop of the, the late 80s, early 90s. You know, when I moved to California, it was in the 80s. So I was all around the whole West Coast, NWA. Dre, uh, all that was going on at the time. So I've always been a fan of hip-hop music. I've always been a fan of something you could dance to because early on I became a mobile disc jockey when I was like 17, 18 years, or no, actually 16, 17 years old. So we were doing all the dances at the colleges and at the high school. So anything that could make people dance, that's what I was into. I love it, man. So you graduate high school, Rick. In your no, nope, I don't graduate <laughs> high school. <laughs> okay, so nope. let's say... <laughs> no, I wish I, I got my GED. It's kind of like a good enough diploma. Unfortunately, when I transferred, when I moved from Cal Alabama to California, uh, a lot of my credits wouldn't transfer. And they wanted me to take a bunch of electives. And I chose not to because at the time I thought I was going to be a stuntman with my dad. So I left high school. And yeah. Um, yeah, I, I never finished. That's when people are always laughing. They're always like, so what did you get your degree in? I said, streets, you know? <laughs> it's like, unfortunately, when I left high school, I went down a wrong path and ended up getting addicted to cocaine and yeah. spent three years on the streets, you know, selling drugs and DJing at strip clubs and doing all the craziness that, you know, you're not supposed to do. But when I got sober is when I went and got my you know, my G GED, got my high school diploma, basically, and then started really pursuing my my career of radio. That's what I always loved. That's what I always wanted to do. So I always tell people, 
your past does not define your future because I went from living homeless on the streets addicted to crack cocaine to launching one of the biggest superstars in the world so if somebody tells you they can't do something I always call bullshit because I'm like I don't know about that <laughs> you know it's right. like or if you need a degree to be successful in the music business I'm like well I don't know about that wasn't my journey wasn't my story I, I just you know so I always try to encourage people to even though you're going to get thrown struggles you can overcome and if you overcome then go chase your dreams but get yourself right personally first and as soon as you got sober what was the first step in your in your music career what was the first step you had to take after you got sober I went I, I after I got sober in my music career I knew I wanted to be on the radio but I knew I'd pissed away three years so I wanted to get an internship I'm all about learning I'm all about learning from the people that are doing so my first internship was at Kiss FM in Los Angeles. I answered the phones. I was an intern for Hollywood Hamilton and ended up becoming uh, a producer for one of the shows there. And that turn opened some doors. And then I ended up moving to Santa Barbara where I got my first job as an on-air radio personality. Nice. For all those tuning in out there, what's the radio station in Santa Barbara? The, uh, so there were, all, there were almost all of them. So when I first got there, it was Y97. It doesn't, isn't around anymore. Then I was at K-Tide. That was a rock station. It's still there. And then in 2001, I built a country radio station that's still there called Crazy Country. And that's what kind of opened it. That's, that's what changed my life was actually country radio. And trust me, I was the guy that used to make fun of it. I was the guy that was like, oh, you play your song back, you backwards, you get your truck back, your dog back, your girl back, uh, you know, all that stuff. And then right after 9-11, I, I helped build this station and I started listening to the lyrics and the craft of these songs. And I just, I got hooked and I was all in at that point. So that, that changed the game for me was building that country radio station because that's also when I became what's called a reporting radio station which means that I submitted what I played to the charts so now the record companies all of a sudden thought I was important and Hell started yeah. popping by you know and that what once again a lot of doors get open but whenever I walk into a door I always try to see what's broke I always want to try to see where I can provide value to that situation and when the record companies started coming through is when I would ask questions like, you know, why don't we get to see them play? Why are they just, you know, playing songs first at the radio station? Let's put them on a stage somewhere. And they're like, oh, well, you know, they don't, they don't have enough material. And I'm like, wait a minute, you guys sign artists to labels that can't play for 30 minutes? They can't play for 45 minutes? They're like, well, yeah, you know, we're kind of, I'm like, that's ridiculous. Cause I came from the rock and the hip hop space where you give somebody a microphone and they're, they're going for hours. And that's when I started realizing about the, inad I don't want to say inadequacies, because I think that's a tough word, but just some of the flaws in the system. You know, it's like, they were like, well, nobody knows who they are, so no one will show up. And I'm like, bullshit, if I play their music and get excited about it, my audience will get excited about it, and they'll come see them play. So that's when I'm like, screw it, I'm going to create my own stuff. So that's when I created the Nashville to You radio tour that basically started taking artists out, putting them on stage in front of Mark, in front of an audience and letting the labels get real feedback. Not just did the song sound okay on the radio, but does this artist have a chance to mm. be something? And yeah, it was, it was great because then all the labels were knocking, wanting me to put their artist out. And I took out, you know, if you follow country music, you know, Little Big Town and Sugarland and Dirk Bentley and all these bands that went on to win Grammys all came through my little tour. I and love here. It. I was just this little guy that said, hey, here's the problem. Let's go fix the problem. You know, if you if you could solve other people's problems, it doesn't matter how big they are. They'll come knocking on your door. I agree. And they probably knew that you were doing much more artist development than them. <laughs> well, and what I was doing, and I didn't realize it, is I had built the tour. So I had started developing my own relationships with other radio programmers. So when Scott Morchette at Big Machine Records decided, you know, to offer me this job to come work for the record company, I had actually been doing the job without even knowing it or getting paid for it. because. If you're in small market radio, you're doing it out of the love. You know, you have to have multiple jobs, especially if you live in California and Santa Barbara area where I was. Facts, at. So, facts, facts. Uh, and you know, you're in California. So 
it's not a cheap place to live. So what I did was when, when Scott came to me and, and I started building these relationships, he's like, listen, he says, I would love for you to come work for us. You'll be what's called a, a record promoter. Uh, you go around and take artists to stations. You'd be on the West Coast. So you'll have nine states, about a hundred radio stations you're responsible for. And I can pay you a lot more money than you're making right now as a program director. So my wife took the job. She said, okay, great. He'll take it. You know, uh, she earned more money and insurance. She was, she was all in. She was ready to go at that point. But, uh, so I flew out to Nashville, met with him. That's when he gave me a CD and he said, Hey, I've got this 15 year old that signed to the label. He said, I would love for you to listen to the music and give me some feedback. Him and I had developed a pretty cool relationship. Uh, he knew I loved new artists. He knew I loved developing artists. So he's like, Hey, take a listen to this and tell me what you think about it. And that was a Taylor Swift CD. And I listened to it and I'm like, okay, she's not quite there vocally yet, but my God, can she write? These yes. songs, these lyrics, you know, it's like I said, there's something there. He said, great. I was hoping you thought so. He said, cause I want you to take her out and teach her radio. I'm like, excuse me. He says, I'm going to send her to you and you're going to take her out. I said, okay. So he sends her to me. I take her on my Nashville to U radio tour. She had only ever done like karaoke and I think a couple of national anthems at that point. And we just we just developed this relationship that was unbelievable. It's like, she wanted to learn. I wanted to teach. I said, I had to have multiple jobs to live in California. Well, one of those jobs was I coached girls high school soccer. So I always tell people, I said, I, I speak teenage female. I don't know if that was a blessing or a curse. But it was just basically God preparing me for Taylor because we would be able to connect and Amen. we were doing things that nobody else was doing but because we didn't know any better yeah you know what really? i mean it's like we didn't know you weren't supposed to want to love on your fans we didn't know that you were supposed to talk to people we didn't know that you were supposed to kind of do all these things so when somebody asked one time they said why did why is it I, I forgot what magazine was doing the interview they said why do you think rick and taylor work so well together and somebody who was very high up in nashville said i say this as a compliment but they were too dumb to know any better they right, weren't right, right. doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. They just, there was this internet and this thing called MySpace and we didn't know what to do with it. And they just went all in on it. And that's what I tell independent artists today is it's like, you have more resources today than we ever did. Oh, and yes. you getting yes, to be independent means you're the boss. Mm -hmm. And that's powerful because when you sign to a label, you're an employee. And if you don't have anything going, the labels are no longer, in my opinion, in a position to take an artist from zero to 70, but mm. they can take you from 70 to a hundred. Mm. So it's up to you to get the buzz. It's up to you to get yes, that sir. going. And, and, and then when you get to 70, you then become a partner. You're mm. no longer an employee. You get to say, oh, so I've, I've already got my music out. I've already got an audience. I'm already doing a million monthly listeners. I've already do. So now I'm just going to license you my record and you get to go work the hell out of it for the next seven years. And at the end of our contract, I still own my masters, you know, cause that's key too, is owning your masters, being able to determine what happens with that. But a lot of people aren't aware of the options that they have. So that's why, you know, when I left Taylor in 2008 and I'll, I'll go into why I left, but I just realized that man, there's a lot of independent artists that got the hustle that they just need some guidance. Mm -hmm. They just, they don't, they may not necessarily be able to afford a manager, but boy, they need some management guidance. They need some management strategy. They need mm -hmm. to be able to get the information that they need. So I ended up, uh, when I first took Taylor out of radio tour, like I said, I was with the record company. And then six months after that is when she went and, you know, interviewed all the managers in Nashville because they were calling me every night. And I finally called the label. I'm like, dude, you got to get her a manager. They're wearing me out. You know, I said, I got a brand new baby boy. I, I'm in California there in Nashville. So it's like, I'm trying to bathe the child and they want to solve the world's problems. So they went, they interviewed and a lot of the bigger management companies didn't, wouldn't touch her. They didn't know what to do with a teenager or they didn't want to work with parents or they didn't understand the internet and she didn't feel comfortable 
with them. So her dad ended up calling me saying, hey, I said, how's the management hunt coming? He goes, that's why I'm calling. He says, what would you say if I told you Taylor wants you to be her manager? I said, I'd say no. Wow. Said, what? I said, I don't have any management experience. He goes, Rick, we're not hiring you for your management experience. We're hiring you because you think different. We're hiring you because you, you, she trusts you. We're hiring you because you have follow through. We could, we can outsource all that other stuff. The label's got a lot of this other stuff. We just need you to build her into a hard ticket act. And she b- listens to what you say. So that's how I ended up with Taylor. I'd right. never managed an artist before. I'd had zero experience. But what I learned, and this is something for all of you that may be struggling right now, go find somebody in your crew, in your vicinity, that's passionate about you. If someone is is like very, you, we all have those people. We have the, the slick talker, unorganized as shit. That's probably gonna be your promoter. You know, maybe you teach them how to call clubs and get you gigs because they're going to tell everybody how great you are. They're always telling everybody how great you are. Then you've got that person that's, you know, spreadsheet person or always laying out post-it notes. That's somebody who could help you on the business side, registering your songs, doing all those things. So start looking around to the people that are in your space to get those people to help you. And Hmm. with Taylor, it was me, you know, and then I also had the support of the label. What was also great was all those artists that I took out on radio tour. I also now had their managers that I could call when I didn't know something and say, right. hey, I'm look, I'm looking at this and I don't understand. And they're like, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. So there's your next life lesson. Ask for help. Don't, you don't have to figure this shit out on your own. Not now with the internet and Google and people like myself who, you know, give people the opportunity to, to work with independent artists, find somebody that can help get you the answer buy Ari Herstan's book. You know, there's a lot of different things that you can do now to get your information. But too often artists, I don't know why, they're stubborn as fuck and they just think they got to do it on their own. (laughs) They got to figure it out on their own. And I'm like, wow, okay. No, it's too crowded. If you guys haven't realized, there's no shortage of talent. There's no shortage of people that want the attention of the music fan that you want the attention of. There's no shortage of people that want the attention of the playlister that you want the attention of. So the quicker we can speed up your learning process and get you in a position to be successful the sooner you'll you'll be successful so that's kind of where i'm going with that and then with taylor i mean we busted our ass for two years uh like i said i had her for about seven months from the station and then i had her you know up until she was 18 and it was moving fast and uh it was getting out of my control you know honestly i like the development side I like the marketing side. As the artist gets bigger, it's no fun for somebody like me because my days now just spent telling people no. Sorry, she can't do that. <laughs> Sorry, she can't do that. And it's like the fun, the fun was almost gone. Really? And and I lit and I was yeah, gone in two thousand and seven. I would drive from Santa Barbara, go right past where you were in Oxnard, hit LAX, <laughs> catch a plane, land in Nashville, catch a tour bus tour for four days come home for two and i was gone 187 days in 2007 and i come from divorced parents i mentioned that earlier so uh, i had had agreed to work for her for two years on salary and that salary was hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year that's why my book is called the hundred and fifty thousand dollar (laughs) music degree because as other people go pay that to get a degree on theory i was paid that to get my degree by doing you know it's like oh, I, yes. I learned how to be a manager by doing that so so basically for those of you that don't understand the math uh, a manager usually makes anywhere from 15 to 20 percent of the gross income of the artist so that's how they were paid back then so right. they were basically just paying me as if she had already generated a million dollars a year so that's where that hundred and fifty thousand dollar number came from because they had set out she will be a million dollar artist by the time you're done with her so we're going to go ahead and pay you now because a lot of the most of the work is done on the front end and there may or may not be a back end for a couple of years and that's another thing that uh artists don't understand is a lot of times your signing bonus that that has recording costs in there it has video costs has a lot of different things it's not like you should go out and buy the house you know, it's like, and that's what a lot of artists do sometimes. They take that advance and then it get, doesn't get recouped. And that's a whole other podcast episode. But they just say, <laughs> so we agreed that in 2008, I would go to a 15% management commission. And 
by that time we'd already had a platinum record she was already out touring and she was getting ready to start headlining her own shows and we had you know 13 million dollars on the books for 2008 which means i would have instantly become a, a millionaire Ooh. and at that point i'm like okay god what's the plan i'm going to see more money than i've ever seen in my life but is it going out in alimony and child support am i going to end up divorced you know and i chose the family and i think a lot of that has to come from i grew up poor so i've never really made money based decisions on money cuz we never had them so it was never part of my repertoire so i called taylor and i went to her and i said listen i will forever be grateful for this opportunity i absolutely adore you but the kids mean the world to me jill means the world to me and she understood you know so i i i agreed to work through the grammys uh for the next 5 months and then after that I looked at my wife and I said listen I want to take the kids and you to Nashville I said I want the kids raised in the south where manners aren't an option I want no state income tax and I want to be able to buy twice the house for half the money in a check <laughs> yeah so that's when I left her was in 2008 and that's when I came here and immediately got hired by Sony Music and started consulting major labels and working with American Idol and you know and then it was about 2010 after every dad with a teenage daughter from Texas would show up with a blank check wanting me to make their daughters the next Taylor Swift and I'm like interesting i said none of them asked me about the work they all just think that because their daughter was a teenager and wrote songs yeah there's no shirt and they all thought since her dad had money that if they had money it would have like dude there's no shortage of dads with money and talent so why is it everybody tailored it's cuz the work ethic it's cuz of the commitment to get to know her audience so well that now they've gone and grown up with her i mean right now there's no there's no surprise to me that she is the biggest entertainer star in the world right now oh, you yeah. know and she's no bigger, fucking doubt and she's bigger than everybody and whether you like her or don't like her her business sense You know, yeah. I I'm yeah. sure Jay-Z just kind of tipped his hat when he <laughs> sat there and he goes, "Damn." Cuz I don't know that Beyoncé went straight to AMC theaters. I think she may have gone through a studio. Taylor and her family went directly to AMC and cut out the middleman, which means a lot bigger profits and percentages. It it's like just the ability of what she's able to do, but the reason that people are willing to spend those prices is because the relationship they feel they have with her. and yeah. that's the biggest difference like i said like her don't like her she's brilliant and she's a badass and she's calculated and we all hope to be that calculated one day we all hope to have people that will follow us for 20 years of the career you know cuz not mm-hmm. only are the ladies that are bringing those those teenagers that she met when she was 16 they're now 34 like she is bringing their kids and that's something i was sharing with somebody one day i said you know i said there's very there's a lot of artists to an audience and perform to an audience there's very few that speak to mm-hmm. an audience mm-hmm. beyonce speaks to an audience lady gaga speaks to an audience taylor speaks to an audience uh think about you know kanye kanye speaks to an audience you know Think about those artists, the biggest artists of all time. They really spoke to an audience. The Grateful Dead spoke to their audience and smoked with their audience and everything else with their audience, but that's the difference between the superstars and just the artists that are cool. You know, we all know a lot of artists that are cool, but are they have they built a sustainable long-term career? Most don't. And there's a and it's okay if you if that's not your goal but if your goal is to do that you have to consistently grow with production you have to consistently grow with trends you have to consistently grow with social media i mean you go look at Beyonce's records back when you know she was young they don't sound like the Beyonce records of today oh, she no. grew she 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 adapted there's a lot of artists that still sound like what they sounded like 10 years ago well congratulations <laughs> you know if you if you want to do casinos you know because you had four hits or whatever the case may be but if you want to sell stadiums 
and sell out arenas, <clears throat> you got to have multiple hits. And in order to do that, you've got to be able to change with the times. And sometimes people are too stubborn to get out of their own way. Amen. And that's what I encourage people to do. Is it's like become a student, really understand what's going on, and make this happen. So, Rick, let me let me let me backtrack a little bit. So, um, so what are, what do you think are the top three ingredients of a radio hit? What are the top three traits of a radio hit? You know, it it, it depends. It's like, is there a sing along part? I think is super important today. You know, is there? A, what's the hook? It does the hook grab you? Because you got to remember, in the world we live in today, there are TikTok hits that are like 15 seconds. So we can use Lizzo as an example. You know, Lizzo's song at radio—that was the second verse that took off on TikTok. And so it wasn't the quote-unquote hook of her song; it was just a part of her song. So now it's different. Now it's like with radio. I think you got to get to the hook sooner. A couple years, or I think it was like a couple years ago. If you notice, most the songs started with the hook. Sometimes the hook repeated, and then the verse. You know, sometimes uh, when you know the chain smokers were real hot, everything had to have a drop in it. You know, if you were at pop radio, if when the collaboration started a few years ago, if it didn't have Nicki Minaj on it, it didn't do well. If it, if Khaled didn't produce it, it didn't do well. If Izzy wasn't on, Azalea wasn't on it, it did. It's like it's so weird. So what I always tell people is, who gives a shit? What's a hit at radio? What's a hit with your fans? What's a hit with your people? Because hits are subjective. There's not a song that a label doesn't take the radio that somebody in the building they didn't all think it was a hit, but they're not all hits, quote unquote, a radio. But they may be a hit on TikTok now. They may be a hit with your audience. So hits are subjective. But with radio, you got to keep the time under three minutes because radio wants to play as many songs as they can in an hour. Uh, because they have to play commercials, so if they can say, "Oh, we're going to play 27 songs this hour," kind of hard to do if yours is four or five minutes. But if you want to chase the radio game, one, it's very expensive. Uh, two, there's a formula. So go find the biggest songs on the radio that you like. Go into Spotify, look those songs up. Go into the credits, see who those songwriters are. Go try to see some other songs that they're doing. Take copy. The lyrics, and then go find a karaoke version of that song and rewrite that song with your own lyrics. The melody's proven and the production's proven. So learn the formula. There is a formula for radio songs. Just master the writers that are getting all the hits right now. Wow. So Rick, let me ask you this, man.、Um, so you were definitely around for her first two albums. What are the memories、yes. that come to mind for the first album? So the first album, which was fun, was actually I was still working for the record company at the time.、Uh, this was like October or something,、uh, and her record hadn't come out yet, but she was doing the liner notes. So she called me up and I said, "Hey, what's going on?" She goes, "Oh, I'm having to fill out the liner notes and the thank yous and everything." And I said, "Hey, somewhere in there, I just want you to write 'Rick is a God.'" She's like, "What?" I said, just hide it. Just write it somewhere. Only you and I know where it's at. Rick is a god. She goes, what are you talking about? So I started sharing with her the old urban legends that you know, if you played vinyl records backwards, there were like hidden satanic messages and stuff. So she took this idea, she ran with it, and she came back and she said, hey, I just sent you a document. It's all the lyrics of the songs. Take a look at it. And I took a look at it, and I'm just seeing all the lyrics, and they're all written in lower letters. And then there's some random capital letters. I said, "Okay." She goes, "If you spell out the capital letters in order, there's a secret message in every single song." I'm like, "Girl, we're onto something." So, soon as the CD was released, we started sharing that. You know, hey, what's going on? Is there something going on in your lyrics? Is there hidden messages or this or that? And then everybody at that time, this was 2006.、Uh, you had to physically go buy the record. To see what people were talking about, because there wasn't lyrics.com, there wasn't iTunes yet. You couldn't go online and find these lyrics. So everybody went out and started buying a record, and she had a gold record, which means she sold 500,000 copies in 13 weeks, which was a record at the time, because people were physically talking about this record. So that was one of them that I absolutely loved. Also, the day she wrote <clears throat> the song 15, walked on 
the bus and shared it with me. I was just blown away. Uh, it just put chills because of the way she wrote it. Uh, and I knew it was going to connect with not just people that were 15, but people that were in their 50s that was that 15-year-old boy or was that 15-year-old girl uh, she was writing about. That was my my the most fun is when she would bring me new songs because she would just say things different than everybody else. You know, everybody else would say it one way and it had been told a hundred times the same way. And she just came in with this unique way of saying what everybody else had already said. And I'm like, damn, you know, so that was a lot of fun, you know, watching her get her first awards, having her thanking me from the stage, uh, you know, and then all my, and then Facebook had come out at the time and people were like, hey, are you that Rick Barker that that Taylor Swift girl just thanked on stage? We thought you were dead. You know, because everybody who knew me thought I had over, overdosed somewhere. You know, I was on, I was on the deep end. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Like, so yeah, that was, that was fun. Wow, dude. Now, the, what thoughts come to mind for the second album, Fearless? That was so crazy. So, yeah, so, so Fearless, what, what happened then is that now she's getting to start touring. So she's getting to start playing more songs off the record. You know, before when you're out opening for, you know, she was out with George Strait, she was out with Tim and Faith and, Brad Paisley for 87 days or 89, tons of dates, but you only get to play like five songs. So now on your second album, and now you're starting to headline, now you're really starting to connect with your audience because now I'm starting to see girls showing up in sundresses and cowboy boots. Now I'm starting to see, you know, people with their favorite song, wearing shirts with titles of songs and things like that. So that's what was super cool about that time period. That was about the time that, that I was starting to fade myself out, but just really watching how much people were taking ownership of the songs and starting to create their own user-generated content. And trust me, back then, it took a lot for somebody to put up a video for you. You know, it's like, yeah, that's that back then when you had to plug like the cameras and drag it and the files were so big and it would take two hours to, to do something. So when you started seeing fans go out of their way to create content using your music, at that point, that's when we knew there was something different. For sure. Um, let me ask you this. When the Kanye incident happened in 2009, did you give her a call? Were you concerned when that happened? I wasn't. I was I, I was gone by that time. I had just complete I was like two months removed from that situation. And I remember the president of the record company was texting. We were texting each other at the time. He was there. And he said, Oh my God. He said, Did you see what happened? I said, Scott, this changes everything. He's like, changes everything. I said, the class at which she handled herself, she now went from being country music sweetheart to now everybody in america wants to see who this little girl is exactly they're all gonna start i thank kanye exactly I said, so, he, he, scott for shut up i think pink's gonna punch kanye i said tell pink to give kanye a hug we yep. couldn't have bought that kind of publicity yeah man no i you know what i gotta be honest like from the hip-hop side of things that's how we found out about taylor swift I'm a yes nobody knew Nobody knew. They're like, hey, who's this little white girl Kanye's picking on? You know, everybody in the hip-hop space knew he was, you know, a loaded gun. But you And know, you could see the look on Beyonce's face. That's who I felt bad for that night, too, you know, was me. Beyonce. But you know, got, because that's music. Music's subjective. You know, I was watching The End of the Voice the other night, and there's five really talented people, and everybody's like, bullshit, it's rigged. I'm like, no, oh, it's a vote-getting contest, you dumb mothers. You know, it's like they can all sing, they can all perform. It's a vote getting contest at some point. Yeah. And that's all that was, is that all of a sudden Taylor got more votes. It wasn't that <laughs> Beyonce's video was any less special. It wasn't that anyone's video was any less special. It's like those things are subjective. And I'll, I'll ask your questions. I don't want you to get off track, but I'm going to tell you something that will absolutely blow your mind. What's up? Okay, you want me to come first? Okay, so uh -huh, go ahead. ask me, when did Taylor know that she was going to be that big? When did we know? I said, I'll tell you the day that she spoke the words to me that I will be the biggest selling artist of all time. It was on in 2007, 
at the ACM Awards. That means the Academy of Country Music Awards. That night, she was up for New Female Artist of the Year with Miranda Lambert and Kelly Pickler. Taylor had the chart position. She sold more records than both of them. She was the buzz. She was the it girl at that point. And of course, she did not win the award. Why? Because the artist at the bigger label won the award because they had more votes than anyone else. So that night was the night she walked down and met Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. And that was an idea that I had created because they, they didn't offer her a performance spot, but I knew television needed moments. And I had a moment. She had never met Tim McGraw. And here's her song called Tim McGraw. So let's make that happen. That's what everyone was talking about. How well she uh, looked on the red carpet. Why? Because those are things we can control. You can control what you say. You can control how you look. You can control how you perform. You cannot control things that are out of your hands, but that's what everybody seems to want to focus on. So that night, she doesn't win the award. She looks at me. I grab her. We go walk side stage. And at that point, she's like, Rick, I did everything I was supposed to do. I said, I know. I'm proud of you. She goes, but I didn't win. I said, Taylor, your rewards are not in direct proportion to the work that you put in the music industry for any creative. No matter if you're a painter, an artist, and you put in so much work. I mean, shit, look at the music. It's free. You know, you put in so much work and the consumer doesn't even have to pay, for God's sake. So Crazy. she looked at me, she said, what's the, is there an award if you sell more records than anyone else? I said, yes, it's called the Billboard Award. She goes, I'm going to win a Billboard Award. She said, and I'm also going to win every fan voted award that I'm that I'm capable of because I'm going to love on my people more than any artist will love on their people and I'm going to and because of that I'm going to be able to sell more records than everyone else and I'm going to one day be the biggest star uh selling an artist in the world I'm like bam there you go no doubt and, 2007 um, at 17 years old she made that statement and I finally got a chance to sit down and watch the documentary last night um Miss Americana yeah and I gotta, you know what, it's my first time really sitting down and watching this, and I just want to say that this girl paid her motherfucking <laughs> not, don't get it twisted, like, she put oh. in the work, man, like. Yeah, she, and wait till you it. watch the eras. I went and watched mm. it, I'm not going to suggest, but wait till it's free, but I went and watched it at the theater, but I didn't want to go on the nights that all the kids were going to have their stuff, so I waited till, like, three nights. It was like two days before Beyonce's was going to be released. So I knew that probably everybody who wanted to see it had seen it. It was like five o'clock on a Thursday. So I'm sitting in there and I'm the only person in there. Not like the only dude. I'm talking the only person. So I plop my feet up. I get a three hour concert and I'm watching going. She is a badass. Three hours, nonstop, costume changes, dancing, not out of breath fans going crazy i'm like omg man this was this was just something to see no something doubt. to see and then i want to go see beyonce's because it's more of a documentary behind the scenes thing so that's my next no doubt let's talk about the hip-hop side of things um yep. 2024 um what are the top three things you think the hip-hop indie artist needs to make this happen first they need the mindset that they're going to make it happen that they do not need anyone to, you know, bring them up. People are hitting me up all the time on Instagram. Yo, bro, you know, it's like, I said, listen, until you believe in you, no one else gonna believe in you. You know, it's like, you need to start using the tools. It's like, somebody wants to see that you're waking up every day, treating it like a job. So that's number one, is you gotta have a different mindset. You just need to start thinking like a business owner and not an employee. Two, you do not need anyone's permission. So you go out. Nipsey Hussle never asked anybody for permission. I tell you that right now. He changed his own rules. Russ never asked anybody for permission. Jelly Roll never asked anyone for permission. He went from the hip hop side into the country music side and now he's killing it. But he was already making $300,000 a month, you know? So he didn't get it. When he signed his record deal, he was not an employee. He was a partner and a good partner at that. So, you know, one, make sure that you got the mindset of a business owner, not an employee. Two, don't wait for someone's permission. And three, stop telling us how great you are. Show us how great you are. I, every day, Joe, I am the best. Oh, okay, great. Show me. Don't mm -hmm. tell me, show me. 
and that's it's like, what no. I want to be able to see. I want you to okay. go Little Wayne style and go sell a million mixtapes. He didn't ask permission. He didn't wait for somebody to tell him he was great. He didn't wait for a record deal. The record deal came to him. No doubt, man. And uh, I think one of the things that is valuable in your knowledge is that you had so much experience putting on tours and seeing artists like hone their skills on stage. And and to me, man, that is one of the most important things. Like you gotta get hit the road. You, and just like Taylor Swift said, you know, she's gonna love on her fans more than anybody ever did. So like the fact that you're, you're out there on the road shaking hands, I think all that counts for it sure. It does, it does. And as a hip hop artist, I used to tell all people, that. I said, you need to learn from the hip hop community because what, they never had the radio opportunities that everybody else did because of the profanity or the n-word or whatever they wanted to put in their music which is that's their culture awesome so you have but now it's cool spotify don't care you know uh they also didn't have the performance opportunities like a lot of other uh genres get one because it can get a little rowdy you know some people may be hacking so it's like now it's like it's starting to once again everybody's starting to chill out a little bit and say hey if we want to create more opportunities for our community, we got to chill the fuck out a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like, we can't, we can't be doing this. So what I'm telling artists right now, especially in the hip hop space is that find a room, get a cool little sound system and stream that shit live online. You could have a, a you could have a vet. Your venue is Instagram. Your venue is Twitch. Your venue is TikTok. You can go live all over the world. Like we just sold for this country artist that I work with, we just sold 185 tickets and she sold $1,200 in merch on a 10 a.m. Saturday morning Zoom with her audience. Zoom. (laughs) It's like, so don't say, well, I have no place to play. Play in your house, Mm -hmm. bedroom. Open up your, don't, don't wait for us to create opportunities for you. There's only so many opportunities, but there's millions of you with talent. So you have to create your own opportunities. And when you get in a situation and I'm not telling anybody to change their lifestyle or change what they're doing, but just know a lot of this stuff is going to bite you in the ass. You know, if you got a cousin that likes to get drunk and break up the place, don't invite him to your show because the venue owner may not let you come back. You know, it's like, let him stay in the house doing what it is that he's doing. But if we want to continue to help each other thrive, we have to learn how to behave. And I say that out of all due respect, but I've watched some really dumb shit take really good opportunities away from some very talented people because a few people didn't know how to act. And it sucks. No doubt, man. Rick, let me ask you this: What's the important? What's the importance of um, getting on Spotify playlists? Playlists these days. What's the importance of the Bandcamp, SoundCloud links? What, what, what's your thoughts on? Yeah, that? yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things too. Is once again, playlists. You're competing with with the labels, and you should be because hell, they're investors in Spotify. You know, they they should have a uh, an edge up because they invested the money early on. Uh, none of us did. I think all artists should have, have should have at least three to four playlists of their own so that they can find songs that people are searching for, slip their music in between there and, you know, really show that their music belongs, that it's there. But I don't think it's an end all be all game. I mean, hip hop does really well in the streaming side. I tell some genres it's just not there, but Hip hop's down at the radio side for a little bit over the last couple of years, but they're still killing it streaming wise. So SoundCloud, there's still a community, you know, that wants to do that. So just whatever you could do is just get, let as many people hear your music every day as you possibly can. You know, use your Instagram to share your Spotify links, your SoundCloud links, you know, turn your Instagram channel and stories into your own radio station. You know, it's like you get upset because you're not on radio. Well, did you share your link today so somebody can play your song? You're your own program director. So don't get mad at other program directors for not doing anything if you didn't do it. You know, did you do everything to help your artist get in front of an audience today? Well, then maybe we should fire you because you're the record company. 
you're your first publishing company. You're your first manager. You know, it's like you want everybody else. You want to wait for everybody else to come do for you. You got to show us you're doing for you. That's what's going to get people's, you know, where they're like, damn, this arm's all over it. They're, we're going to have to wait. They won't even know you're not signed. Yo, Rick, what's it like? Um, let's say the importance of, like, you know, I, I lost my train of thought. Like, in this indie game, you know, what I'm saying, like, what's the importance of a music video? Because anybody with an IG can post a reel. It can all get lost in the sauce too. But what's gonna make a music video really flourish and stand out? Yeah, well, right yeah. now we live in a 15-second world, though, Marley. You know, it's like everybody. It's like. You just need some something great. You don't need official music videos until your song's really popping. You know, everything mm-hmm. needs to be on your phone. Everything needs to be POV, which stands for point of view. You can you can walk through the yard, lip syncing your song, having it play, and throw some filters on it. And that's a that video will work just fine on social media. Mm-hmm. It'll work just fine on social media, and. Uh, you're a hip-hop artist and you want people like me who love hip-hop sharing it and i'm gonna find the part that doesn't have the the, the twerking or the n-word or anything like that because i'm not going to share that with my audience if i can't say it i'm not sharing it and i can't <laughs> say it that's just that's just the way that it is <laughs> you know it's like you know I, I i sing in my car but it's like i just i don't feel good on anything that degrades women or anything that I just don't go there. So if you want more people to share it, find the cleaner parts of your song so that you can get other people because you're like, well, my audience don't like that. Well, if you're ever going to grow, you need other people to introduce you and then let us come in and find I'm like a clean version. Even if it's 15, 20, 30 seconds, you'll grow your numbers that way. Because trust me, we all hear the other parts. We listen to the full songs. But you want people to share, to say, hey, I like this guy I found. Check him out. I love this girl I just found. Check it out. And if all it's talking about is violence and drugs and all that stuff, you're not going to get as big of an audience. So let's, I, I, I mean, I'm 31 years sober, but I listen to songs about that. Why? Because I listen to music different. I love the stories. And guess what? Drugs are part of the stories. Guns are part of the stories. Shorty's part of the story. You know, but if I'm going to share it with my audience, I can't share that part because I don't know if they're in the car with their kids and all of a sudden it's like, you know, I, I think you know what I'm saying. How, how does sobriety feel for you these last 30 years, man? It's been great. Like, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. I, I mean, none of my friends thought that I would live past 25. I mean, when I turned 50 uh, six years ago, I was 25 years sober and 50 years. So I'd been sober for half my life, but it was like, uh, I, I know that I needed I needed that part of my life. That's just part of my story. I look at things different, you know. I take I take I look at things as gifts, you know. I have a sign that hangs in my office that says "No excuses." Someone didn't wake up today, uh, and I, I just artists we love to make excuses, you know. Creatives love to make excuses, and I'm like. No, I, I feel like I got a second chance on life. So my goal is to help as many people as I can. That's why I started working with independent artists. It's like every year somebody has a baby that's going to want to, you know, be famous or share their music. And I know how to do it. So that's what I do. I love you, Rick. Let me ask you this, man. Um, what are your tips for all those who are interested in managing somebody in the hip hop genre? Sure. Ooh. So find, find an artist that is going to outwork you find someone who doesn't make excuses find someone who understands this is a job find someone that if they can compensate you in some way will and don't let them go up to work every day mm-hmm. i always tell people fall in love with the jockey not the horse the jockey it's the art. It's like you, the, the song, sometimes we fall in love with those songs and then we're like, oh my God, the music's so good. Yeah, but the artist is an asshole. You know, that's never going to change. It's like, there's no shortage of good music. So find someone who appreciates you, you know, find someone who understands that this is a business. That's key. Yeah. 
one of the final questions I want to ask, um, Rick, what's your thoughts on the whole genre of like rap and rock? Like the whole era of Limp Bizkit, Linkin Park, uh, Rage Against the Machine. I know they're still out there touring with Chuck D. Like, what do you think about that genre? You think it'll, it'll make a comeback soon? I don't. I don't know. I think it's like we need to make things make a comeback. You know, it's like that's how things come back. Mm-hmm. I just think right now collaborations are great collaborations. I mean, I, I heard Walk This Way the other day. You know, I listen to you know Fly on Sirius is my favorite radio station. It's R&B and hip hop from the late 1990s to early 2000s, and they had you know Run DMC and Aerosmith, and I loved it. I love that kind of stuff. But I was coaching an artist the other day, and I said, you know what, somebody needs to do is we need, you know, my we're, we're doing mashups right now. Like my buddy DJ Eric Rhodes did this mashup with Warren G and Morgan Wallen. That went viral, and the reason that it went viral is because all these black people were putting it on their、uh, TikTok page, going, "What happens when my white country friend takes over my radio station? Takes over my radio?" So the 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 person is just kind of jamming to regulate, and then all of a sudden you hear this country singer come in, and the look on their face, and I'm like, "Oh, this is going to go huge." And it was because it was accepted by the black community, and they loved it. This guy, he blew up. But that's a collaboration that's very unique and very different. But yeah, bring back something. You know, it's like there's no traditional rock stations anymore. There's no new, you know, like you're down in California, KLOS or KMBT or any of those. Those are almost gone. They're all classic rock stations now. So I don't, I don't ever think. We, I can hope something comes up, but it's gonna take the right people to make it come up. I love it, yo, Rick. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, man. No, I, I appreciate you, Mono, for taking the time out. No, for sure, it was really informational. And、um, to all those tuning in out there, to all my artists, man, don't give up. It's gonna take work, you know. Like, I know he's in some crazy shit right now, but I remember Diddy as a businessman, as an entrepreneur. I know.、Yeah. As, a, as an entrepreneur, though, Diddy goes, it's okay to dream, but you have to be really realistic on what it's gonna take, and you gotta you gotta really be realistic and see what it's gonna take to do this. You know, so it's like、uh, I just want to、um, encourage out there, man. Like Rick's right, you gotta have a team around you, people who believe in you, and that's really important too in this journey as an indie artist. You're gonna need that. So, Rick, man, thank you. I'm hitting you back on the text right now. All right. You got it. And anybody want to hit me up on Instagram? It's at Rick Barker Music. Just shoot me a DM.、Uh, I've got a bunch of free resources to help you guys out, and I look forward to、uh, connecting with you guys in the future. And the podcast, y'all got to check out his podcast, MIB Podcast. More than three hundred episodes, giving you guys tutorials in the music business, indie game, ma- major.、Um, so yeah, Rick,、uh, I'm gonna hit you up. Thank you so much. Appreciate、bro. it, brother. All right, I'm gonna keep in touch, bro. All right. All right. All right, buddy. All right. Peace, peace.